Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hello, this is Charles Sims, your host of In Social Work. Welcome. This episode is the second of two parts looking at social justice in the information age. In this part, our guest, Dr. Virginia Eubanks, participates in a question and answer discussion with members of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work community. Their conversation includes the digital surveillance of poor and working class communities, the problematic effects of digital information systems on the work of case and public assistance workers, as well as thoughts about the challenges of the information economy on employment today and in the future. Our guest also answers the question, what is digital justice? Dr. Eubanks is an associate professor of women's, gender, and sexuality studies at the University at Albany, State University of New York, and a Ford Academic Fellow at New America in Washington, D.C. Dr. Eubanks received her Ph.D. in Science and Technology Studies from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, and much of her research and writing centers on issues of social justice in the digital age. She is the author of Digital Dead End, Fighting for Social Justice in the Information Age. Dr. Eubanks is also among the founders of Our Knowledge, Our Power, a grassroots welfare rights and anti-poverty organization, and Popular Technology Workshops, a place where people come together to combat social, economic, and political injustice in the information age. The discussion took place in March of 2015. It's all to Charles's point. So my area is also child welfare, the mm-hmm. research that I do. And so I'm really fascinated with this idea of digital justice. And just wondering if you could speak a little bit more what that might mean for families, communities, as far as child protection is concerned. Yes, and I think there's one of the reasons I'm really committed actually to writing about child protection is because I think it's a case where the stakes are so clear, right? Like you do not want to lose track of kids particularly in foster and adoption, right? Because terrible, terrible things can happen to kids at the foster and adoption system. So I am absolutely not saying that we should not use every tool at our disposal to make sure that we don't lose track. My concern is a similar concern to the concern I have in public services, which is that the system that we currently have is not set up, in my opinion, to support intact families to get the resources that they need to care for themselves and their children effectively. I think we have a hugely disproportionate, we have huge issues with disproportionality in foster and adoption, right? So, you know, Dorothy Roberts' great work in Shattered Bonds, which is like mostly African-American children are taken out of homes three to 10 times as often as white children. And I suspect that having more efficient systems does nothing to address issues of disproportionality and might in fact make them worse. So that's my concern around child protective. So there's been some great work recently about like, you know, give all child protective workers iPads so they can do all this great work in the field. And I haven't looked into that specifics. So it might be doing some great work, I don't know. 
but I know what the people I work with in the welfare rights movement, I know where their suspicions would be about that, which is like, oh, you're making a more efficient system to steal our children. And that is something that we really need to think about. Especially this idea of highly surveilled neighborhoods. So, like, not just disproportionate racial disproportionality, economic for sure disproportionality, even just neighborhoods. So neighborhoods where one out of three people have had had some contact with child protection, but just these highly surveilled neighborhoods already. And then kind of, this is just something I haven't thought about a lot either. Just what does that mean? What are the technology issues in child protection? I'm just kind of thinking about that. It just, I haven't thought a lot about it. I think the surveilled neighborhoods thing is a really big part of it, right? So my suspicion is probably rates of neglect and abuse are not that much different. Like high levels of stress can certainly make this kind of stuff worse. But I'm not sure that rates of occurrence are that much different across classes to explain the, did the highly different rate of engagement with the child protective services system that we currently have across classes. I think the difference is that poor and working communities are highly surveilled and all their people's behavior is very visible. And also this whole thing about the difference between abuse and neglect, right? Like, so not having resources can also get you in the child protective services system. So the visibility, all these visibility technologies, going back to law enforcement stuff, body-worn cameras for police, now, like, literally will be on all the time, and anything entering that camera is evidence, right? So your kid's running around on the street, like, or, you know, it captures something and unintentionally, not even in an interaction with the family, and that becomes evidence that, right? And where are police wearing body-worn cameras most, right? They're in poor and working-class communities and often in communities of color. So the entryway to the Child Protective Services is very much mediated by technology. And then another big question is if you can ever get out of that system once you're in it, right? And I might get my numbers a little bit off, but it's very close. My understanding is that if you are accused of abuse or neglect, even if it's not founded, that goes into connections or another system, and that that record is retained, I think, for 10 years after your youngest child turns 25. So we're talking, you know, 35 years that this is now part of your record. And one of the big questions that I have is there's supposed to be firewalls around this information, right? But we know that, at least informally, this kind of information gets to housing, right? Or gets to criminal justice. And so how are these systems connected to each other? That's actually the next work I'll be doing after Digital Poorhouse is working with some of these organizations that I've been doing research with to actually map the data flows in their neighborhoods. So we're gonna do one like in public housing and we're gonna do one in prison reentry services. And there's a third that we haven't sort of decided what it'll be yet. But we just don't know, right? Like, is the database that public housing uses connected to the child protective database, connected to the criminal justice database and how, and what are the rules for information sharing? and since devolution, we know there's a bunch of nonprofit and for-profit organizations involved in the mix, and what are their rules for information sharing? And is this being sold to data brokers? And are people data mining this information, right? So it just keeps going. And I think we know very little about it right now, and we really need to know more. Like, it's really, I think it's deeply important. I'm biased about it, but I think it's deeply important. Even decision-making 
processes in CPS are becoming more and more automated, where you look or digitized technologically oriented, where people are making decisions based upon screens about whether or not a child is at risk and yeah. at a higher risk and who should and whether or not that child should be removed. And it goes back to discretion. Some of this goes back to discretion and training and experience may be overruled by the fact that, oh, we've got a score of X, so that child has to be removed. And if you don't, you run the risk of the system coming down on you like 10 tall buildings if something were to go wrong. Yep. Almost never happens, but in, in rare cases it does. And it's very visible when it does. Oh, very visible. Yep. And everybody's looking at that person saying, why didn't you do X? Why didn't you do your job as if you were some kind of slacker? Why didn't you do your job because the algorithm told you to take that kid? And it also, one of the things that I think is really important to understand about the systems is, and I'll just talk about public assistance, but I think there's parallels to Child Protective, is it's not just used to bring down sanctions on clients. It's also used to bring down sanctions on workers, yes. right? So one of the things they do with the system at the state level is collect information about which office is most efficient at potentially reducing the loads or timeliness or whatever. And if you don't hit those numbers, then the office gets sanctioned and sometimes financially sanctioned, right? So I think of it as like a sanction up, sanction down system with caseworkers really in the middle trying to navigate, like doing their job. And most caseworkers and child protective workers who I've talked to just really genuinely want to help people. <laughs> Not all of them, but most of them. And really feel like they're caught in a bind between this kind of statistical reporting and statistical response that they have to do and the actual work that they want to be doing, which is, you know, providing resources and help and support to families. And I think that's quite similar to the sort of debates we've heard about CompStat, um, kind of computerized statistics in the NYPD, where it created situations where people felt like they had to go out and stop and frisk people and ticket people and arrest people in order to keep their numbers up. Like, so in Indiana, one of the reasons that so many people got denied for failure to cooperate was the private contractors were trying to hit their timeliness numbers. So they were only allowed to spend, this is actually with the hybrid system, so it's probably even different at the time, but currently in the hybrid system, supposedly they're only allowed to spend seven minutes per case. And they talk about the work as being changed from this sort of professional comprehensive practice to digital piecework, that they now are doing pieces of cases under very tight constraints and they're sanctioned if they don't hit their seven minute target. And sometimes, I haven't verified this yet, so I just wanna say that this is through stories that people have told me only, but from what I hear from the people I'm talking to, you get docked if you don't make it to your timeliness numbers, like your pay gets docked, which is basically just piecework, right? It's the same as making lace collars, like in a basket at home, like you're just sort of cranking out and then the incentives are all to just push people through because a denial is fine. It hits your timeliness number. Like the incentives are not to do comprehensive work. They are to push people through the system. And I suspect that that had something to do with why so many people got denied. There's even rumors that they were batch denying people, just like saying these 20, I don't have to time to deal with them. Hit the button, say no to them all. And then if they call, tell them to appeal or reapply. Because that, of course, moves the financial costs, too, off the private contractor and onto the state, 
right? Because a fair hearing is not their job. A fair hearing is the state's job. So they then save money and hit their timeliness numbers and just push the problem sort of down the line. Um, and I, I'm seeing a lot of that in these systems in different areas. And I suspect it, it might be happening in Child Protective as well, but I don't know that yet. We'll have to have a phone conversation about what you guys know. Because I'm trying to figure out, I want to do Child Protective in New York State. So welfare's in Indiana, law enforcement's in LA. I've done a bunch of interviews with Child Protective folks in New York State, but I have not done sort of journalistic interviews, so I have to shift them a bit. So I'm trying to think of what like the big interesting case is here. So I'd love to talk to you guys about what you think that is. Can I just ask you to define the phrase digital justice? Because I think people would be interested to hear how you sort of... Yeah, and there's a couple of really great models for it. One is a human rights-based model that comes out of an organization called the Detroit Digital Justice Coalition. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to be able to dredge it up from the back of my brain right now exactly what's in it. But basically, they see the right to communication as a basic human right as protected by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and that technology is part of that human rights framework. And so they talk about sort of access as one part of their sort of agenda or their platform, but they also talk about right like safe and healthy communities and the right to communication and expression. And so it's a much more holistic idea of digital justice. There's also, if you're specifically thinking about big data systems, this sort of algorithmic stuff, there's a really great statement called the Civil Rights Principles in an Age of Big Data, I think, that came out of the Leadership Conference, which is a civil rights organization, and was signed by the foundation that I work with, the Open Technology Initiative at New America, and the NAACP, and Color of Change, and now, and a bunch of other organizations that has five or six principles for thinking about these sort of new data systems and civil and human rights. So they talk about, right, like stopping digital redlining. They talk about uh, fairness and fair process in automated decision making. And there, there's a bunch of other things that I can't dredge up. But I really like that model because it recognizes that these systems are built in a context of racial and economic and gender inequality and that everything's not just all new. So it has a sort of historical consciousness about it, like, oh, these have been the problems in the past. These will probably be the problems going forward. They'll probably look different, but these are the kinds of things. We should keep looking for redlining, right? We should keep looking for unfair decision-making. We should keep looking for equal access to public programs. So I think that's a really great model as well. Thank you. That's very useful. Yeah. Thanks. This has been terrific. It's oh, I really appreciate the invitation. Super fun to talk to folks in social work. I don't get to work with um, people in social work as often as I'd like to. So it's, and also coming from a welfare rights background, I think it's really easy to put caseworkers in the enemy box. And I think that frontline caseworkers particularly are so close in the, their situation to people who are receiving benefits, that they're just natural allies in this work. And so I think a lot about like, how do we make better coalitions between clients and exactly the opposite of what the governor, Mitch Daniels wants. I'm like, how do we make better coalitions? Because we recognize that these are shared problems, right? That the attack on public workers is the same as the attack on public programs, and that it's part of a, a single attempt, and that we need to be on the same side in order to really talk about it. It's a little hard to convince folks who are recipients in the movement that this is in their best interests. 
But, you know, I think that line is very fuzzy. I think a lot of people in frontline welfare work are working off their grants, right, are working off their benefits. And it's a very fuzzy line. And I feel that way about, I think, unfortunately, there's a role that organized labor could play as well in protecting recipients of public services as well as public sector jobs. So I think there's a lot of coalition we could build around this and that we need to build around this between organized labor, public employees, and recipients of public programs. I think that's really true because, you know, I think about our trauma in perspective. But when you hear people's stories about how they were so disrespected and mistreated when they applied for benefits, one has to ask, well, what did happen to the person? What's it like for them working there that they would mistreat people so? You know, and they must feel, I think, so disempowered and devalued within their own system, being frontline workers. That's what often happens. And our narrative, our cultural narrative of, like, taking taxpayers' money, for potentially fraudulent, but definitely suspicious reasons, right? That cuts across every level of this. So caseworkers believe that, recipients believe that, politicians believe that. Like, so one of the big struggles, I think, in welfare rights work is to help people reframe their own experience because everyone you talk to is the only person using welfare rights. (laughs) You know, like the only person who really needs it and everyone else is scamming. And then that gets complicated around sort of gender and race stuff and and immigrant status and lots of other things. So there's an enormous horizontal violence in the system. And that's caseworkers and recipients and even some like well-intentioned policymakers and certainly the public, right? So I think that that's a cultural work we have to do. And I'll say, there's a really great book that you guys probably already know by Mark Rank called One Nation Underprivileged. And I think he's done some really important work to start that conversation because what he does is he looks, we tend to look at poverty at a moment in time. So it always looks like this minority issue, like maybe it's 5% or maybe it's 10% and then we fight over whether it's like 10 and a half or 11 and a half or whatever. And what he does is he tracks people's experience with poverty over their lifetime and people's interaction and use of means-tested public services over their lifetime. And what he finds is, God, I think it's 53, 54, 56 something percent of people in the United States will be under the poverty line at some point in their lives. And 64%, like two-thirds, a full two-thirds, will access means-tested public assistance. So that's not like Medicare, that's like TANF food stamps, like home heating assistance, public housing. And so I think it's really important to say, like, this is actually a majority issue. This is all of us. And we, A, we need to stop lying to each other that we haven't accessed public services because two-thirds of us have. So why is it that we all think, like, no one has ever done that? And we need to start talking about it as something that we all do. We need to sort of destigmatize it in that way. But it's really challenging. It's really challenging to do that work in this political culture. Well, I think in this country it's always been challenging. You know, I think what the Great Depression maybe start, people started to think that, oh, a lot of us are impacted by poverty. Maybe it's a structural issue. That was the only time. You know, that I think was the only time. <laughs> After that, you know, we demonized people who were poor. And I kept thinking when you were talking about voter ID laws, mm-hmm. so much of what you said yeah. kind of goes across that, too. And I just wonder yep. if you would think, you know, would speak a little bit about that. Yeah, I think one of the many connections with the voter ID laws, I think that's a great connection, is this idea that fraud is the problem, right? Like, so 
you know, that, and this is my understanding of where fraud is at in public services. You guys probably know this better than I do. Is like in food stamps, it's about a penny on the dollar. In Indiana, before the modernization, I think the fraud rate was about 1.2%. So it sounds roughly consistent. It's about 1%. It's about one penny on the dollar. So the effort to get that from 0.01 to 0.001 or zero, it's like an arms race where, you know, there's always going to be some degree of fraud in these systems, just like there is in taxes, right? But we like go nuclear on fraud in social service system because of these cultural assumptions we have. And it is incredibly costly in terms of just financial resources, right? Like it's very expensive to get to 0% fraud because it's pretty much impossible and because people are really creative and because people know how to game algorithms. And, but it's also really costly in terms of the human cost of it, right? And politically, it's really costly politically as well, which I think is another connection with voter ID. So I think shifting the, the sort of way we talk about it, again, is a major cultural shift that we need to do where that argument of this is the problem that like 1% of people might get $120 cash rather than saying like the problem is that our system is stingy, stigmatized and not functional because of these cultural values we assign to it. You know, I think that's really the work. And I think that's the same as voting fraud. Like the problem in voting is not that people are clamoring to cheat, like to, to, uh, to, to do voter fraud. The problem is that people are so disengaged that we have the lowest voter participation in the like entire industrialized world, give or take. And that seems like a more pressing problem to me. And I think the same thing goes for public assistance, that I think the 50% of people who are eligible for food stamps and do not take them, like that's the problem, right? The problem is that people will starve rather than ask for food stamps. It just seems like a more pressing problem to me, like it affects more people, like it's more solvable than the, the sort of anti-fraud um, arms race, which I don't find interesting really at all, except for as something to say that we should stop doing it. One stop creating whole entire systems with that one goal in mind. Yeah. Which really sounds like what happened in Indiana. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just kind of mind boggling to me. Yeah. Spend a ton more so much trying more to eliminate money. fraud than we would actually have. Yeah. So, yeah. That's what happened in Florida protesting, right? Right. Mm -hmm. They right. stopped doing right. it because it cost them more to. Way more. Probably. Way more than they actually found. Yeah. This yeah. guy. Why, why are we doing so? Yeah. yeah, when I teach, I teach a class on public policy. And when I teach the class, I talk a lot about performative policy making, where it's like it's not about whether it's effective or not. It's about being seen in a certain way, right? About being seen to be tough on crime or tough on fraud. Or it's very popular. We have a political culture that will make you very popular, unfortunately. And so it's not about whether it works or not, right? It's about how you seem. Yeah to constituents. And so there's a lot of work that needs to do, be done with just us normal folks, right? To help people understand what the system really looks like, how it's really used, and who really uses it, right? Which is why I think Rank's work is so important. Oh yeah, I see in terms of, of what you just described as performative politics, a very strong connection with a lot of the public discourse issues that you're talking about where Really, I think a lot of the empirical question of what works and what the science is and what the reality is and what people's lived experiences is just not the actual issue, although it's framed in those terms. It's really 
putting forward a, a moral and ethical stance and saying, these are my ethical values, only disguising that in terms of this is the reality. And I see sort of that general trend bridging those two discussions, the political and the social discourse. Yeah, and it's deeply seated. Like, there is just no getting around how deeply seated it is in this country and also in lots of other places. So. Like one of the things that I started doing when I was looking in that, I was talking about this archival work I was doing about the technological systems. And I was like, okay, so I just need to go back until like the philosophy changes so I can understand what the technical systems were that changed the philosophy. So I'll just keep looking at the systems. I'll keep going back and I'll see like when the way we thought about poverty as a country changed. And I got back to like 1720. <laughs> and so I looked at like, you know, scientific charity and I looked at, you know, I just kept going back. And like, I got back to the poorhouse ledger and like not that much had changed. And so that's part of why the new book is called Digital Poorhouse is like, we just keep recreating the same system. And it's not, you know, because it's, more or less efficient, I don't think. I think it's like there's just new ways of creating a very similar system, which is one that punishes disciplines and limits the life opportunities of the poor. And I think it's a, an appalling waste of human resources, just an appalling waste of human potential. I just think it's criminal. I mean, it's a criminal waste of human beings. Speaks to our values in the nation. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And it's like, as Mark Rank says, it's un-American, it's un-Christian. It is against all of our basic Mm -hmm. values. What we propose are all of our basic values, and it uh, destroys democracy. I think it's also an important part of that to talk about. Just the one point you made, too, a while back about everyone, you know, that there's such a large percentage of people that have even used public assistance, but it's like this exceptionalism. Well, I used yeah. it for the right reasons, right. Or, right. but I know everyone else is trying to scam the system. Yeah. That's just probably pretty pervasive and hard. I think you kind of have to get at that to say, no, this is what the system is here for. Right. Just to take the shame yeah. away from yeah. it. Right. And and there's, a, yeah. there's a level of shame. Yep. And, and there's always some kind of like, you know, counseling you have to do with people to talk them into using public services. And like, I don't know how many times I've been like, this is what it's for. <laughs> like, you know, go on unemployment. Like, like you got fired, like, and it wasn't your fault. And this is what it's for or laid off. Fired would make it hard to get in unemployment. Or like, you know, you are struggling to feed your child and you are working two jobs and like, ask for food stamps like that's what they're for like this is what government is supposed to do and i know that people disagree with me on that like that that is not what everybody thinks government is supposed to do but i believe that part of government's role is to if we have gone all in on capitalism is to help mitigate the worst effects of of a system that requires that five to ten percent of the population be disposable right and that's not getting better that's getting worse and so that's that's our job and yeah so I do a lot of convincing of like you have to use these resources right it's like public transportation right like as in many places except for major cities as soon as you cannot use public transportation people stop using public transportation and then it gets sort of gets kind of tarred with this brush of like only a certain kind of people use public transportation and then we continue to treat it like the ugly stepchild when if more people from different places who have the privilege to not use public transportation would use it 
it would be politically stronger, right? Because it would be harder to, so like things like the Bus Riders Union, I think is like brilliant. Like let's support and protect our public services together across lines of race, across lines of class. But it really takes people who have a bit more privilege sort of being more aware of why public resources are important than they might be on their own. Yeah, so it, it's a movement issue. I was listening to NPR a couple of weeks ago. They were talking about employment. And the basic thesis was is that as we move, become more technological over time, and it starts to take more and more of jobs that people are used to doing, mm -hmm. that what's going to happen with our society at large when large numbers of people who had employment, their jobs are now done by robots or other kinds of mechanisms. What will people do, for lack of a better term? Nobody seems to be thinking about that. Nobody seems to be talking about that. And we have the steady drumbeat march towards robots and other kinds of other kinds of machines or technology to do things and maybe do it more efficiently, more repetitively with less problems. But then what? And, you know, we've kind of seen the beginnings of that as as uh, more and more employment's moved overseas for a variety of reasons. How does that change the equation of what is quote quote middle class versus working class versus that you know that what's a little bit proletarian that, that they talked about it expanding and contracting as needed? I think it's a really important part of the puzzle. I actually write about that specifically in, in Digital Dead End in my first book because there was a lot of talk coming out of before the bubble burst, before the internet bubble burst about the internet economy being the economy that was going to lift all boats, right? And of course, it's exactly the opposite, which is a deeply bifurcated economy where a small number of people who have access to education and the resources to relentlessly self-train can have some really interesting, really high discretion, really mobile, fascinating jobs and everybody else is in the service industry. And when, particularly if we won't commit to doubling the minimum wage, right, that is absolutely the feeder for public services because if you have a family and you're making $8 an hour, um, it doesn't matter how many jobs you have, right, you're gonna need some kind of support, even if it's just childcare to get to your three jobs. So that's a huge part of the puzzle. It's something I try to talk about like in workshops and stuff. It's like, you know, we're all responding to the new economy as well. And so I think we also need to continue to have that conversation of like, what does public services look like? Again, if we've doubled down on this as our model for economic growth, right? If our model for economic growth is like the 25% of people who manage to get a four-year college degree can do quite well, and everybody else is, you know, working in data centers or fast food or healthcare, then like, how do we need to think about how public services needs to respond to that? I think it's a huge, huge part of the issue, like what's happening to employment. I was just in Muncie, Indiana last week doing some research for the Indiana chapter in the book, and I cannot think of a better place to be sort of the poster child for the new economy, right? Like it's a college town and there's like a little tiny, like very hip Brooklyn downtown, right? It's like seven stores uh, and a coffee shop. And the rest of the town has just been gutted by the disappearance of there's a, there was a transmission factory that was there, there was a wire factory that was there, and there was a GM plant that were there. And they all closed in the last 
30 years and people went from having, you know, union jobs that paid 30, 35, 40, 45 dollars an hour to either being unemployed or to working in the service industry. And it's just a really different world that we live in than we lived in 30 years ago. And we absolutely have to sort of keep Muncie like front and center in our heads. And I think particularly if the folks who are really invested in high tech economic growth don't Think about those jobs as being part of the information economy as one of the dead horses I like to beat a lot is like service work is the information economy. <laughs> like we have to stop measuring this as if the bottom three quarters of the economy didn't exist. Like we have to actually measure the whole economy to have a real picture of what that looks like. So I think that's a, it's a hugely important part of it. Yeah. And it's a very volatile economy. You can't make bets about what's going to happen. So, and this is huge for issues of gender, like the retraining, the constant retraining is very, very hard for people who are also primary caregivers for families and children and elderly people. So there's a disproportionate effect on women in the information economy, particularly uh, working class women. I think I feel most hopeful when I look at mobilizations on the local level. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where it is really happening right now around minimum wage, around Black Lives Matter. I mean, it really needs to be local. And I don't know how that ultimately will drive Washington. Who knows? But I think it's really the local work is really where I feel the most. We have to start to link the local work well, and that yeah. has begun to happen. So yeah. there's an organization that is like a big hero organization of mine, which is the Poor People's Economic Human Rights Campaign, PPERC. Poor People's Economic Human Rights Campaign, which was co-founded by Sherry Honkala, who is one of the people who started the Kensington Welfare Rights Union in oh, West right. Philadelphia. And she's just amazing. And you know, she's been arrested 200 times. She like ran for sheriff of Philadelphia on a no evictions platform. She's just like unstoppably great. And this network was formed at the US Social Forum in Detroit, the, the set, either Atlanta or Detroit, either the first or the second US Social Forum, I forget which and is a coalition of poor and working folks groups. So uh, welfare rights groups like ours, we're a member organization. Oh, the organization I work with uh, that I helped found is called Our Knowledge, Our Power, OKOP. It's a welfare rights economic justice group. So our group is part of it. A lot of sort of homeless action groups are part of it. A bunch of youth like the Hip Hop Congress is part of it. So there's a really uh, just an extraordinary group of organizations who are starting to articulate themselves as poor people's organizations in a way that sort of I find really inspiring, right? Like that poverty in the United States is like a political identity is part of, I think, that cultural change that needs to happen. And they're also just a really extraordinary group because they're very committed to meeting people's basic material needs, like so that they're able to organize. It reminds me of one of my favorite Black Panthers things is they did a lot of social programs, which many people don't know about. So they did health programs, they screened for sickle cell, they did free lunch programs, they had, had crossing guards that helped little kids cross the street in Oakland, right? They did amazing social programs, but they called them, it's like social programs while waiting for revolution. So there's this idea that you can't separate the politics of social service and the politics of social change and that you actually have to do those things together. And so PPERC, one of the things I've been super impressed by is like when they went to the Detroit Social Forum, they started in Florida. They brought a contingent of mostly homeless folks all the way to Detroit. They all left with zero dollars in their pockets and supported each other to get all the way to Detroit by talking in churches and all this kind of stuff. 
Um, every time I've done any kind of organizing with them, you get fed three meals a day. There's always childcare, right? They're very, very conscious about like, people cannot do this work unless you meet their basic material needs. And they manage at the same time to be completely radical, right? Like, so they're like, what should we do? We should take over all the HUD-owned homes in West Philadelphia because they're doing a terrible job. And then they occupy these homes, you know, like these abandoned HUD homes, right? So they do this amazingly radical work while still really meeting people where they're at and like making sure that people are cared for. And so there's a kind of a healing justice part to it that I, I find really inspiring. So I'm deeply inspired by the poor people's movement in the United States right now. I don't think it's super visible, the national poor people's movement, but it's there and it's growing and it's, it's really, there's some really extraordinary people. And there's been a couple of signal flags, right? There's been a couple of things that have gone up and not quite caught. Occupy, I think, was one. Yeah. And I think Occupy, I mean, this, this is a, a controversial thing to say, but I think Occupy really foundered on its class stuff, particularly around homeless folks as part of the movement. Like there was an amazing opportunity for us to think about what it means to build coalition across people who have access to the basic resources they need to survive and the people who do not. And we didn't quite get there, but it was a better attempt than we've had in 30 years. And I think that that's just the beginning, right? I think there's you know big things coming. So I'm very hopeful about that. I'm incredibly hopeful about that. I think of myself as a hard-won optimist, right? Like, I find cynicism really easy and optimism really hard. <laughs> I work really hard at my optimism and networks like the Poor People's Economic Human Rights Campaign is how I maintain my sort of hard-worn optimism. They're just brave and smart and, and extraordinary with people with enormous amounts of integrity. You have been listening to the second of a two-part discussion on technology and social justice with Dr. Virginia Eubanks. It is our hope that you found it enlightening as well as thought-provoking. Please join us again as we continue to explore those topics important to social work at In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.